mean, I don't know. As the kids today say, a minute since we recorded the last day of aficionados. I've been to Australia and back. You've done some travelling as well, Connor. Wide variety of things to to discuss. Let's talk about your recent trip. Where did you go? Uh, I went two different places. At the end of March, I went to um, Georgia for my sister's wedding. Mm. Uh, And then at the beginning of April, about two weeks later, uh, I went to New Mexico uh, to see the Trinity site, the site where the first nuclear bomb was set off. Interesting. Interesting. So do you periodically go to Georgia? Is it a place that you know? My sister and I were raised in California, and then we both we went to college as far away from California as we could. Uh, so I kind of went towards the northeast, and she went towards the southeast. So uh, my sister has lived in Atlanta, I guess, for about as long as I've lived in Pittsburgh. So, yeah, I go there maybe once or twice a year. Yeah, of course, when she's getting married. Certainly, certainly. Well, a wedding was what got me to Australia as well. So it's interesting, these... Um you know, reasons to travel to certain places. But let's talk about the Trinity site while we're on your recent vacations. Does it have beaded glass or things like that? I mean, what actually marks the site? I flew into Albuquerque, uh, and Albuquerque is at the part of New Mexico that's kind of the bottom edge of the formal part of the Rocky Mountains. Uh, So it's in the shadow of a pretty large mountain range, and you can see another large mountain range to the west. And then... um. As you go south, you go south along the Rio Grande River, uh, which eventually becomes uh, the border between U.S. and Mexico uh, along the Texas part. Uh, and maybe, I guess, a little bit of the Arizona part now that I'm picturing it in my mind. Um, but anyway, uh, so it's this very narrow, fertile valley uh, or fertile part of this super wide, just like endless expanse of nothing. Um, and then there's this little cultivated part that has a highway and orchards, uh, and you keep going south down that, and then you cut over 15 miles, enter an airbase, go another maybe 15 miles inside the airbase, uh, and then, uh, you're pretty much at the back end of the back end of nowhere. When they did this, uh, explosion, the press release they put out was that they had accidentally... Uh, that they had had a shed that was holding ammunition and fireworks and it had gone off accidentally and that it was no big deal. Uh, and they only needed to tell like 50 people because there's just no one there. Yeah, so the site's not much to look at. It's been 70 years. I think in the 60s they kind of put a layer of topsoil over it. But you can still see, uh, the things you still can see are a shed that they put on the site afterwards that had been elsewhere on the property, but which they moved over to that site so that it could preserve a patch of the trinitite, which is this glass that got formed in the explosion. You can see that, uh, and it's sort of under a lot of sand now. Uh, You can also see the ruined uh, sort of broken-off I-beam where one edge of the tower that the device was placed on top of uh, had stood, and the concrete that they had poured to make the foundation there uh and then i think they had built um either the non-nuclear part of a prototype or they had rebuilt one or they had just made a replica one uh but there was a full fat man bomb uh or bomb replica that they had brought out just for the day on the back of a big trailer it's interesting 
such a fascinating period of time, particularly for those of us that are interested in the Second World War and the use of what one would call, I guess, perverted science by the Nazis. The sense I'm reading currently Winston Churchill's account of the Second World War, in part to alleviate some of the reading of the rise and fall of the Third Reich, which is a pretty particular perspective, but also because I've been trying to watch The Darkest Hour. Well, I've watched it maybe three or four times to try and understand why people say it's a good film, <laughs> in contrast to actually reading Winston Churchill. But if you can imagine the technical minds that went into the first nuclear explosion, and in particular how many of the contributors were both Jewish and European, there is something very striking about the US's use of nuclear weapons early on, because it was so created by the menace of the Second World War, but also it was almost a middle finger raised associated with the Jewish intelligentsia that had been expunged out of Germany through the 1930s, basically. So, yeah, it, it's a very poignant thing. Um, also, obviously, incredibly overwhelmingly destructive and a technology that seems to be frequently misused and bandied about in a variety of different ways. But yeah, fascinating location. I think it's uh, the Nuclear Testing Museum, which I think it's what it's called in Las Vegas, is my favorite museum in Las Vegas, which is kind of damning with faint praise. But it is fascinating because it talks predominantly about the Cold War nuclear crisis. But it all started, obviously, in the 1940s, really the early 1940s. And the Fat Man bomb is so iconographic. So they they were just moving it through on the day that you were there by chance? Uh, no, I think it's, it's something they wheel out uh, for the day of. I think that uh, it, it, it's um, housed somewhere locally. Okay. Um, so you were there on the anniversary of the testing date? Ah, so they only open it uh, on the first day in April and first day of October. So neither of those are the anniversary date. Okay. Um, the anniversary date is, I think, in July. Uh, and I guess that's just to minimize the chance that someone attempts to do something poignant. Oh, interesting. The notion of the military keeping fireworks and munitions together. I mean, the lie is such a beautiful lie in terms of the fact that it it doesn't pass any modern sniff test. Like the notion that uh, the military just keeps, you know, fireworks and munitions together because they're the two things that you'd store together, obviously. Yeah, yes. yeah. The um, the press release that went out was actually one of about twenty that had gotten drafted uh, by the <laughs> that was person the doing the. <laughs> yeah, um, and and it was the one for for if everything goes well. But many of the press releases that this man had to draft included uh, him on the list of casualties because he knew that he would be at the testing site when it went off. Certainly. Yeah, what an amazing on the off of time. chance that they uh, <laughs> that, that, that they really underestimated. Um, <laughs> yeah, well, though I guess that there was a, a there was a thought that uh, because they just didn't know they didn't have enough data that they might set off a chain explosion that couldn't stop where the atmosphere just lit on fire and that was the end of the earth. To a lesser extent, when they created CERN in Switzerland, there was some concern that they might create you know, negative matter and suck the world into a vortex or suck the universe into a vortex. It was a similar kind of experiment. No one had ever done it before. And it's actually fascinating how close they got the calculations based on 
I mean, speculative science is just a really fascinating area, but obviously speculative science that could completely engulf the world in death and uh, destruction has a particular cadence to it. I'm about to, well, I don't know when it's actually going to come out, but one of the sections of the book about the hacker John Draper Crunch that I've given text to is an account of him experiencing a nuclear explosion. He literally was driving with his school buddies along a road. They made one wrong turn. They didn't close the road down because this was, I guess, the 50s still. And uh, their car was hit by the shockwave from a nuclear blast, which apparently happened relatively, I mean, disturbingly frequently that people accidentally got in the path of uh, these tests. So it's, it was frequent enough that it was a superhero backstory. Well, yes. Well, that's curious in of itself. It also means that they're oftentimes orphans as well, but that helps in the superhero myth. But yeah, it's interesting the rise of atomic energy and obviously the nuclear testing museum in Vegas. I mean, they were setting those things off into the probably the early sixties, if I remember correctly. It's really quite obscene that once they actually had these bombs, they continually tested them. Tested, I guess, in inverted commas. I guess it's, if you're in this ordnance industry, if you can't use the weapons, what purpose is that for the weapons to be there? Aside from, obviously, literally millions, if not billions of dollars into physics research. Your father has a physics background, doesn't he? Do I remember that correctly? He, he was a mathematician uh, because computer science had not spun Absolutely. up as a department okay. uh, for, I think, his undergraduate and then for his graduate and um, uh, his PhD. Those were both in computer science. Uh, but my grandfather was a, a physicist and chemist, uh, and he actually worked on the Manhattan Project. He he lived in Oak Ridge, and uh, my dad grew up in Oak Ridge, uh, the secret city in Tennessee. Mm. Mm. Um, so he worked on, uh, my grandfather, uh, John Seitz worked on, uh, he did mass spectrography. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not quite sure what he did during the war. Uh, I assume part of the, the separating process, cause I guess they weren't enriching the uranium. They were just getting the, the isotope they wanted separate from the many, many other isotopes they didn't want, uh, with big electromagnets. And then after the war, his research was in mass spectrography, so using a beam of radiation pointed at an object uh, and receptors on the far side of the object uh, to figure out, based on the scattering pattern of how the object scatters that radiation, uh, what the object's composed of. Certainly, yes. And your other grandfather is the one who was into Brook then? Yeah, so my, my mom's dad uh, was into Brook and was a journalist. Interesting. Uh, Interesting. Yeah, my grandfather yeah. was also into Brook, but he was uh, he was in the Eighth Army. So, <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. Actually, I'm getting to a point of saturation. When we talked maybe two months ago, associated with the Second World War and the First World War, I was starting a kind of intellectual saturation, which has gone on since we last recorded, consuming everything I get my hands on, and now I've gotten to the point where I was in a, a game store here. Um, Legends, Comics and Games in Santa Cruz. And the guy behind the counter who loves to talk said that he was starting to play Bolt Action, which is the game system that we talked about associated with the World War II figures. And I kind of looked at him and I, it's a bit like, I'm not sure if you, sometimes when you eat something for 
frequent periods of time, delicious food, but still you have a frequency of, of eating it, it becomes less palatable. So when he started talking about his Second World War army, I was like, I'm working on the Great War army now. I'm, I'm, I've moved beyond the Second World War. <laughs> like, I've reached mass saturation. I'm now thinking like Winston Churchill. I'm creating phrases and sentences that only Churchill would ever utter. I, I've reached point of mass saturation associated with the Second World War. I will return to it occasionally but I do not need any more of it now. Thank you very much. So, yeah, it's interesting when you see the world through that lens, in particular how people were just so completely different back then. I mean, the whole psychology of, you know, the everyday person on the street was just such a different thing. And now, obviously, we've had nuclear explosions. We've had terrorism, terrorism, terrorism. We've had all these different experiences. We're genuinely, like, different psychologically, I think. But it's fascinating just to think about these projects of, ultimately projects of men without gender biasing it too much and how destructive and ridiculous and fantastic. Like just, it doesn't make logical sense the scale of things that went into the Second World War. And obviously the Manhattan Project is part of that or at least a means of a conclusion. But yeah, fascinating period of time. So in terms of actually the Trinity site, were there a bunch of people taking selfies and stuff? I mean, what what exposure did you have to the Trinity site? Were you there for a particular talk or a memorial? Or was it just, you know, filing through, seeing the various things, observing the fat boy and then leaving? What, what tourist aspect did this thing have? So uh, we, uh, I guess, left late. Uh, we arrived at the edge of the, the Air Force Base. Um, or it's not an Air Force Base. It's a missile testing site. Mm. Um, but I think it's managed by the Air Force. And we arrived there maybe an hour after they had opened the gates. Uh, and we were faced with maybe a two-mile-long line of cars. Wow. Uh, and that was just that they had just queued because because they were checking everybody's IDs at the gate. Mm-hmm. And they weren't even checking them inefficiently. They were doing uh, – they had five guys lined up, and then they'd have five cars all roll in and stop. And then in parallel, they'd check all the IDs and then send all five on. And, you know, so they were keeping going quite a clip, but there were, you know, a couple thousand people who were showing up, and they checked the IDs of every single person who came in. So, And I guess they turned a couple people away. Uh, I did see some some cars streaming back, but not not too many. And then it was a drive into the site, and then at the site there was a basically a big parking lot that I think has been there for a decade or two, uh, except for the flash flooding. It doesn't seem like very much moves around in that part of the desert at all. You know, like if you lay down a whole bunch of gravel, it's not really going to go anywhere. There's a chain link fence, and then there's about a quarter mile walk uh, into the center of the chain link fence uh, area, and then there's another chain link fence, and that's where the site was. Uh, I guess they've kind of manicured a lot of it, so the blast pattern is gone. Um, mm. It doesn't really look like anything on satellite view uh, if you're looking on Google Maps or or any other satellite map. One of the locations we went to on the road trip was, and again, I'm going to forget. I want to say Flight 93, but it's probably the wrong flight. It's the 9-11 Memorial in Pennsylvania. And that oh, yeah, that's with, the Flight 93 in Flight 93. Uh, Somerset, in Somerset yeah. County. It's quite a set of not particularly well-marked roads before you get there. But when you're there, it strikes... I mean, we were there in winter, so 
less people being interested. Actually, probably it was, <laughs> it wasn't, well, what was it? Anyway, whatever season it was, we were there then. Very few people, like completely empty, basically. But it strikes me as a really interesting site. And one of the things that I find in this country that the US does particularly well is sites in the middle of nowhere that, you know, convey some historical significance. So I think this would probably be on a list of sites to visit. It's interesting that they have them, you know, the once every six months opening, because I would certainly consider going for a visit. And that whole country, that whole New Mexico area, my wife wants us to spend some quality time in Texas in the next year or so as well. And, you know, I have so much time for the South what would you call it? It's not even really this. It's the central southern part of the US. It's not really the southwest because, as you say, huge spaces and yeah, just scenery that uh, is sublime, but also very much hostile to general human interaction. So wonderful, wonderful. And in contrast, have, have you done? Are you planning any camping? Anything like that in the foreseeable future? You're going to get out of Pittsburgh? through the summer at all oh yeah um camping is definitely on the menu actually just last night uh me and uh one of my housemates uh had a campfire uh just out in the woods just about 10 minutes away from uh our neighborhood uh because there are some woods around here uh the woods kind of when the city stops it just kind of really stops you know there's not really a suburban part it just goes straight into woodland Fascinating. Maybe I should talk a little bit about Australia, or maybe I should, we should just get into what the hope is for the next few months. Um, let me talk a little bit about Australia. Why don't I do that? Um, oh, yeah. In terms of Attic Aficionados, I spent only a day in Adelaide. It was, well, I had family to meet. I mean, a lot of the trip was not necessarily obligatory, but it was meeting interesting family members. I met three great uncles, two great uncles on either side of my father's parents, and a great uncle who's my mother's uncle and that was interesting the great uncle in new zealand was basically homeless through the second world war he had a number of really interesting stories but he was only i think he was about 17 when the war ended and then he went and um, joined the british army in the sinai but his recollections are of a very interesting period of time in england when it was almost anarchy. I mean, the whole period of the Second World War for the general population was very curious. You have bombs raining down in large parts of the UK, at least the cities, but also you had rations and a variety of uh, austerity measures designed to protect the country fundamentally. You also had, and I think I might have talked about this in Attic Aficionados, small workshops, individual contributors that were building a wide variety of things for the war. Uh, the UK had such a fascinating backyard weaponsmithing and various other things. I mean, it's really fascinating the parts of the you know, Second World War in terms of the general folk that are not well memorialised at all. Um, I have a few choice artefacts and a few books about this period. But uh, yeah, certainly the, the home guard was very real as well. Anyway, so I met that uncle, and I met his family members. A few of them were ex-Stone Ape listeners, actually, which was interesting. Always interesting to meet at least former listeners. Yeah, New Zealand was more like Australia in the 1970s than I'd anticipated. There were a few curious 
somewhat backwards experiences. We went to Hobbiton. Hobbiton was nice. It doesn't, you know, it's a, a strange homage to various UK towns. I mean, it's basically an homage to the UK countryside, or at least the small villages that dot the UK countryside. So from my perspective, it was kind of strange to be in a paddock in New Zealand trying to fake some things about the British countryside, really. But, you know, that was an experience. And we went to a cave with the glowworms as well, which is the double header of the New Zealand trip. My wife and my mother both went to New Zealand with me and they did a bunch of additional stuff while I was meeting family. And then we went to Ordinga, which is in South Australia. It's pretty close to Adelaide, actually, for my cousin's wedding and hung out with my family through that period of time. But we only had a day in Adelaide. And people may recall this podcast was originally started by me and Brandon DiCamello about, I don't know, April last year. And there was a long-standing narrative associated with Adelaide. And I'd promised Brandon that I'd send him some photographic evidence when I arrived in Adelaide. But also it was going to be a means of Brandon, like, reconnecting. He was obviously through the end of the recording last year. Um, but he had a bunch of stuff that he was working on, particularly with his house. But I haven't heard anything more from Brandon. So I think it's an interesting period of time to reflect when you go on these kind of vacations. One thing that I did do that was really nice was I went to military hobbies in Unley, which is actually... Unley is the epicentre of hobbies in South Australia, directly opposite military hobbies. These are two hobby stores which are literally kitty-corner from each other. There is the Orange Express which is a train store of great acclaim. In fact, when I went back to South Australia, I recorded a model rail radio with a bunch of people, including one of the gentlemen who I met at uh, the Orient Express probably seven years ago. He's now retired, but he was at the thing, and I did an operating session uh, on Jim Gifford's layout with this uh, gentleman called Don. So I didn't have a lot of time. I was going to see a great uncle. I was also going back to my grandparents' home. But I had to get into military hobbies because they sell pre-painted miniatures, like pre-owned miniatures, basically. And I had gone there maybe nine years ago, and I hadn't bought anything. And it was like one of these long-standing regrets that they have bunches of little miniatures, beautifully painted, very cheap, um, comparable to you know fair market value. So while I was there, I bought some gene stealers, I bought some space marines, and I bought half a dozen curiously kitbashed, for want of a better term, orcs that had had a variety of very strange, eclectic things done to them. And uh, that was my homage to military hobbies. But I didn't have enough time to cross the Orient Express. It was a very packed day in Adelaide, and I was somewhat disappointed that such a trip, such a long trip, it was about two weeks and a couple of days only gave me one day in Adelaide and a bunch of family obligations through that particular day. But yeah, it was nice getting back to Adelaide. It was nice taking photographs and getting a sense of the place. And I think it's a different pace to the rest of Australia. It's a bit slower, but also it's the stuff you like, Connor. It's cafe culture. It's people sitting around having long conversations, you know. You don't really get that as much in Sydney. Sydney's very much a business place. Melbourne is... You know, Melbourne is Melbourne, it's its own place, but it's not like Adelaide. And, um, yeah, I think certainly my wife and I would like to spend more time in Adelaide. We've got a few family members there. It's possible to get back without quite so much family obligation. 
I also use this period of time to reflect about this particular podcast and thinking more so that the quality of conversation that you and I have, Connor, is very different to what Attic Aficionados was originally. And I think the topics and these kind of things, we maintained a good group of listeners from the Brandon Tom rapping period. But I feel as we record, uh, as we continue to record, it's become its own thing. And I think what we'll do probably through the summer months, I have a friend coming from Australia, Alex, who will be here for three months, quite literally three months. And through that period of time, what I'd like to do is record some podcasts with him, which may or may not fall in Attic Aficionado's remit, might be more Stone Ape in format. But I want to record some more podcasts with him. And also there's potential for you. You were here towards the end of summer last year, right? Was it June or July that you were here last year? Yeah, I think July. Yeah. So ideally what would happen is if you can recreate some aspect of that, uh, Jay, you and I, maybe Alex if he's here, we could record a few mega podcasts as well. What I said to Jay was what we should do is basically spend a day or two, maybe even get an Airbnb or something, and just record, 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 and then have, you know, maybe five to ten podcasts ready to go out at various times and hopefully through this time we can also workshop the kinds of things that we want to talk about i mean you historically listened to me through stone ape and stone ape was a very different podcast to attic aficionados but i'm interested in really defining a format that you know is more what you and i do rather than being in the shadow of you know what brandon and i did or certainly for me the end of season one of attic aficionados was pretty abrupt We'd come back from the road trip. I'd met Brandon. There were certain things that went on through the road trip, which seemed to indicate that probably, you know, Brandon and I may not continue to record or work together. There wasn't anything just, you know, we just interacted with each other. And I think we realized in that interaction that stuff that was in Attic Aficionados was in Attic Aficionados. And that came from two people recording remotely. So then... I wanted to continue with the podcast. I also felt really bad for the listeners because I think the listeners had invested a lot of time and a lot of energy in Attic Aficionados. And certainly I had as well. And I thought, well, you know, let's try this thing out. Let's try recording with Connor. And I think we got a few, you know, excellent shows recorded. But you and I have very different interests in terms of the stuff that we want to talk about. And I think it's really important that we frame those interests in the best way to gather an audience that are similarly interested in those things. So... Moving to a more philosophy, urban planning, you know, urban survival, all this kind of stuff. These are topics which weren't really part of the remit of Attic Aficionados. And I think what I'd like to do is record some more sessions with you, potentially also sessions on location, and then just frame something new out of what comes from that. And certainly when I mentioned this to you a couple of days ago, you were pretty receptive to this as well, right? Yeah, no, that sounds like a great plan. Um, and the the uh, the big recording session sounds like um, Crisis on Infinite Toms or some other kind of uh, big crossover episode. Yeah, I think the the scenario is that Alex is very much his own person, and he is part of a lot of my writing. He features um, in you know books that I've written as a character, but he also so one of the main characters from Field of Chaos, a fellow by the name of Kingston in Field of Chaos, absolutely loved Stone Ape. And what was curious was I met him uh, maybe a couple of years ago when I was back in Australia, 
and he had been through all of Stone Ape, and he had found there are certain stories which I don't tell in their entirety in one recording. I spread them out over like three recordings with about 15 episodes in between these three recordings. And he'd been able to piecemeal some of these stories together. I mean, he was absolutely a quintessentially obsessive Stone Ape listener, which was interesting because I thought, okay, this is someone who, you know, obviously I've spent some time with. I wrote a book based on his stuff, but I haven't really had any connection with this guy for 20 years. And he absolutely loves Stone Ape. Alex, in contrast, is his own person. And he's somewhere between all of these things and something, you know, relatively unique as well. He has a perspective which I think is an interesting combination of kind of a British perspective and an Australian perspective. He's lived for a couple of years in the UK recently. He's road-tripped across the US. Um, he's coming back here to write a book, so maybe he'll talk a little bit about the book in the recordings. But I think there are lots of different things. I have a sense that, um, although I've not recorded Art Web, uh, Brandon's friend Art Web, I know Art Web quite well. We, we've gone on a walk and you know he comes to the games nights i think alex has an interesting combination of australian features that art web might gel with as well although art isn't hasn't put himself up for any kind of podcasting he's certainly going to come over and play some games of warhammer 40k when we set up the potential also is probably to use our house as well for the recordings if need be I can send my wife to a spa, no doubt she will lead a spa after, you know, two months of Alex staying with us. So I might send her away <laughs> for a couple of days. Although, in broader podcasting terms, my other podcast co-host, uh, Jay and I, my wife is going to look after Jay's corgi. So the, the triumvirate of podcasting personalities is coming even closer together um, <laughs> as my wife gets involved with these aspects as well. But yeah, I think what I'm interested in saying to the broader listenership is firstly, thank you for putting up with the past 18 months. And certainly the movement, the sharp movement between Brandon and Connor, I think was eased over, but I think we're just dealing with distinctly different things. And also, I want to make perfectly clear, the road trip part of Attic Aficionados, which has never been adequately discussed, wasn't really the beginning of the end of Attic Aficionados. I think it was just a means, firstly, for me and my wife and my mother-in-law to see a vast quantity of the US. But also, when we arrived in Westchester and the time that we spent at Westchester distilled very quickly, that actually Brandon's friends were, you know, people I was communicative with. Brandon himself had a bunch of stuff that he was working through, and Attic Aficionados was maybe a part of that, but it wasn't something that kind of continues on. So with that in mind, I think we need to find a very witty and succinct podcasting title for the future connor i think there are a number of things actually that i'm really interested uh in exploring i mean perhaps while you're on location so once you have travel dates please let me know and we'll coordinate accordingly and i'm not sure i'm not sure how this thing will all come together but no doubt it'll just be copious quantities of audio that'll be put up in a variety of different places i've felt very strongly that the stone ape audience has been not necessarily neglected but just kind of isolated after the end of stone ape as well so the potential to rekindle or at least those that are still on speaking terms associated with stone ape you know i think there's potential to recultivate that listener base as well so i don't know that's my thinking currently do you have any do you have any thoughts any concluding points before we wrap up the recording no i think that all sounds good i guess maybe like have a happy summer yeah, well, my view is that you're going to be 
indelibly connected with my summer through a variety of things. I think we might, I mean, maybe when your garden gets going, and my garden's pretty close to getting going, yeah. maybe we'll do a garden, special garden episode or something like that where we could just talk about some of the early experiences. And I think we could certainly gather a couple of recordings through that. The main issue that I'm just going to have is that I'm going to be hosting someone for an extended period of time, and just the quality of time that I've had to do recordings historically probably won't be there as much. So maybe we should uh, take notes and prepare for a garden special at some stage. And I'm certainly using Instagram quite a bit currently as a means of putting out garden-related videos. But yeah, I think there's certainly a lot that we can put together through the summer months. And honestly, the aim is really to cultivate as many adventures as possible as well. So, you know, when we come to doing the the big recording, we'll all have stories to tell, all have adventures to tell. And, uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to uh, having a lot to discuss when you are in the Bay Area. Yeah, uh, I look forward to that. And um, uh, my Instagram handle is Connor S-B, C-O-N-N-O-R-S, uh, as in Sierra, B as in Bravo. Uh, and I will also be, I guess, putting my garden photos up on there too i think i've already been doing that there's at least some nature stuff up on there but but now it'll be where the garden updates go Very uh, cool. so we'll uh we'll take photos all summer and, yes uh, yeah and hopefully you'll get to at least consume some of my produce when you're here too i picked up some berkeley pink tie-dye tomatoes today which i think are heirloom tomatoes with multiple colors which is why they call them tie-dye but they're local tomatoes. i got to support local tomatoes. Oh, excellent. Um, we're just finally finishing up our uh, raised garden bed. It finally maybe stopped snowing this week. Mm. Uh, we had an inch of snow a couple days ago on Wednesday. Uh, it's been a late, late winter, but I hope it's spring. Very good. I'll talk to you when you're in town, Connor, and maybe a few times before then so we can get a, a garden special out. But it's been a pleasure, and thank you for putting up with... Uh, with my general podcasting over the past few months. Yeah, sounds good. Have a great summer, man. Take care. Bye.